sometime earlier in the retreat, uh, Tanisara quoted quoted a saying from my great sage, Indian sage that uh, has been a wonderful source of inspiration for many people and for Tanisha and myself. The sage name was Sri Nisargadatta. I think he died in the 80s. And she, she um, quoted that wisdom says I'm nothing or no thing. Compassion says I'm everything. Between these two banks, the life of the sage flows, the wise one flows, or the enlightened one flows, or Tanisra translated it at the time, the practitioner flows. Wisdom says I'm nothing or nothing, compassion says I'm everything between these two banks. The life of the sincere practitioner flows. On one level, the, um, this looks so contradictory. You know, so that uh, wisdom says I'm nothing, compassion says I'm everything, so that it makes it look like what do they have to do with each other. But remembering that all the teachings are, are skillful means, and that words ultimately cannot approach the Dharma. Words are ultimately, concepts are ultimately distortions. We can't really capture it. Like we have a name, but our name isn't who we are. The name points to us, and then one can recognize and explore the dynamic qualities of who we are. Just like the word breath can point us to the breath, but that dynamic, ever-changing suchness of our breathing isn't captured by the words. Similarly with skillful means, that sometimes the skillful means seem contradictory, but actually all of them are helping bring us back to balance. Like the, the f- famous story Ajahn Chah used to, to tell was that, uh, you know, if he's... Uh, on a road with his disciples in front of him and he's in the back and watching them and those that he sees are veering to the left ditch, the ditch on the left-hand side, he'll call out, go right. And the diligent disciples will write down, Master says, go right. But as he sees the, some of the disciples uh, in danger of falling into the ditch on the right-hand side of the road, with intensity, the master will call out and go left. And then the diligent disciples will write down, oh, master says, go left. Then they'll start arguing with each other, what, what is really, what is it about? Either the master's confused or you didn't hear him right or 
But again, the go left and go right are all about learning to find that point of balance. In ignorance, when we're caught up in attachment, there's no discernment. Our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our impulses, our consciousness itself is me. We're glued to it. So the function of wisdom begins to to discern, to take something that's so much like me and it objectifies it to a certain extent. That's what awareness does. It's able to say, ah, there it is. And then to notice, oh, it's changing. The body's changing. Pain is changing. There's awareness of it coming and going. Starting to, in seeing its uh, uncertain nature, unreliable nature, seeing the quality of dukkha that arises when we expect it to be otherwise, seeing its insubstantial nature, then the wisdom starts to recognize not me, not mine, that that's a misconception. That I'm not a thing. Whatever I think I take myself to be, when wisdom looks at it and sees that it's changing, ultimately empty, it's there, it's not there, empty of substantiality. It's insubstantial. Empty of independent existence. As Tanisra was speaking this morning, everything that appears to manifest, manifests in, in this complex web where other conditions allow something to come forth. Like the dewdrop takes all sorts of conditions for the dewdrop to appear, and then the other conditions shift, and the dewdrop's gone. It doesn't have independent existence, therefore, it's said to be empty, empty of self, empty of thingness is another way of talking about it. So, wisdom reveals that nature, leads to the letting go, and then reveals the, the heart the luminous heart, these different words. It reveals suchness, reveals the deathless Dhamma. Sometimes, though, what happens, what can happen is, is we let go and then realize all this suffering comes from grasping, we can still keep a sense of aversion for the world, aversion for contact, just want to live in that peace. And even in the mind, we have a word for peace and we have a word for suffering, so we can still hold a, a dichotomy in the heart. That's veering into a ditch. It's veering into a, an extreme, a wrong view. And, and when we're... When we're seeking peace away from conditions. That's then when it's really helpful to have the teaching embrace. There's a version operating there that's saying, I'm here and that's over there, I don't want that. Embrace, open to that. Compassion says, I'm everything. between these two banks. When the, when the heart is, is distorted by graspings, really this passion is very important to let go. 
when the heart is still being distorted, we're not really in touch with our essential kinship with all beings, all conditions. There's only one suchness here, one substance. Then the teachings on opening to, welcoming, being friendly, being with, learning to find our well-being with the conditions, just as they are, is very helpful. So though there's seemingly very different words and different mechanisms, the movement of letting go, the movement of compassion appear to be two, but actually they're one. They're not two. They're not dual. Just like the in-breath seems so different from the out-breath, but actually they're not divided. They're, they're part of one totality. Letting go, embracing. Breathing out, breathing in. One mind. And actually, wisdom, wisdom is the source of, of the highest compassion, isn't it? It's by wisdom, through seeing clearly that we through mistakenly keep grasping things for fulfillment, for happiness, for stability, which keep bringing us suffering. So wisdom recognizes that and lets go. So ultimately, wisdom is what relieves us from suffering. So wisdom and compassion are, are deeply connected. And for wisdom to develop, guess what? In the first ennobling truth, how does wisdom develop? not just by thinking about things, but remember what is the first ennobling truth is when there is something difficult, is some suffering from the most difficult, great pain, death, to the most subtle dis-ease, anxiety, existential angst. The Buddha said that what's important is to open to that, to be with the suffering. Well, to be with suffering, that's the word, that's our English word, compassion, isn't it? Passion, suffer, come means to be with. So without some willingness to be with suffering, you don't get wise. Without really being wise, our compassion is misguided. That's why for a Buddha to be a Buddha, a fully awakened one is vijacharana sampano. We chant it every day. One of the titles, one of the epithets, one of the descriptions of a fully awakened one is vidya, which is wisdom, clear seeing. Charana, which is activity, and what kind of, what is the Buddha's activity about? It's activity that's rooted in wisdom, but why did, why did he act? For the, moved by compassion. To respond to the beings in the burning house of samsara, to help bring beings back where they've always been but haven't noticed it, back to abiding in their own suchness, their own home. So charana or conduct is sometimes translated as compassion. So a Buddha, vijja charana sampano, means a Buddha has these two wings balanced, wisdom and compassion. So for, for a while we want to, to shift the focus slightly 
but still, it's still the same mind, it's still the same practice. We want to look a little bit more at this uh, compassion practice, this kindness-compassion practice. And just as samatha and vipassana, which can be described as the, you know, the calming and the insight meditation, and which can, uh, there's a way of looking at how they need to work. The Buddha spoke about them working in tandem, similar to, say, two oxen working together. But there's a tendency to, this is the way the mind works, to pick samatha. There's whole schools around samatha meditation, schools around vipassana meditation, all kinds of debates. And there's a tendency to split them up and forget that the Buddha said both were essential. Same can happen with the metta practice, the kindness practice, and the uh, wisdom practice. Um, with... Um, as you recall, one doesn't ever really get concentrated. One of the great blocks to concentration is aversion. Not wanting to be distracted, not wanting to be disturbed, not wanting to have anything impinge on my concentration. That's one of the greatest blocks to, to experiencing calm. So remember uh, in our earlier cultivation of calm which leads to wisdom, that there was the great encouragement to, to be patient with, kind with, and accepting of. And all these practices that, uh, like Tanissa was talking this morning about the most subtle, understanding the dependent origination, how suffering isn't suffering as a freestanding entity. That suffering only manifests when the conditions are right for it. In a condition of ignorance and grasping and birth, suffering manifests. When the conditions change when grasping is released. There's not leaning on conditions, looking for certainty where there can be no certainty. What we thought was an eternal condition of suffering is gone. That's why Ajahn Chah says, right where it's hot, right where it burns, it's right there where coolness is experienced. Right where samsara is, right where suffering is, it's right in this same place where we experience peace. Ah. But this subtle process, we can't experience this without some kindness. Because, as we know, our minds kick up a fuss and we get irritable and we get exhausted and we get resentful and we get enthusiastic. And without some willingness just to be patient, be kind, be allowing. We just get too wound up or, or give up. So this kindness practice is important, and even though sometimes people laugh at it, even in our monastery there was a, you know, there was a group, there was a time, and I guess all of us fell into it from time to time when 
when, you know, we were doing the real thing. We were going after the top. We were eyeing that, the big cliff. We weren't looking at lower slopes. We were going for Nibbana. So that means, that means that's real deep inside stuff. That's cutting through. And so one could, and there was a tendency to get a bit dismissive of kindness practices. That's what the old ladies do. <laughs> you know, we'll leave it to the old ladies and that's fine. But, you know, we're going to do the real thing. And actually there was a lot of really, that was misguided, very misguided. Once a monk got uh, bitten by a snake and died. And the other monks came back and told the Buddha, so-and-so got bitten by a snake and died. And the Buddha said, that monk didn't practice any metta. If the monk had practiced metta for snakes, kindness for snakes, he might have still been bitten, but he wouldn't have died. And then the Buddha taught, there's a chant that we do frequently here, of kindness for the four classes of snakes, and not only that, for the no-footed, the two-footed, the four-footed, the many-footed animals. May they not, may I not harm them, may they not harm me. And um, developing a boundless abiding. The Buddha said, this kind of practice is for your protection. It guards you and it guards other living beings. And the Buddha taught also, and and just to get a sense of how important it was, he said, even if someone only practices this meditation for the time it takes to pull on the udder of a cow. Now, that's something I've not done recently. In fact, I can't even remember doing it in this lifetime. But the point was, I think it's not long. It doesn't take long to pull on the udder of a cow, milk a cow. The Buddha said, even if you do it for that length of time, there's something, there's a tremendous nourishment that comes out that. Something really nourishes living beings. He says, if you practice metta for even that short of a period of time, you can consider yourself a disciple of the Buddha. Now, why would that be? Well, what happens when we practice kindness? Or what happens when we don't practice kindness? Clinging me and mine, what I want, my pleasing sensations, my success, my possessions, my turf, my stuff. And then no kindness means other stuff's a threat, other stuff's in the way, other beings. So where does that take one when there's no kindness? Notice the isolation. That is so out of touch with how things really are. There's no paticca samuppada there. Well, there is. The paticca samuppada, the dependent origination, is when you do that, that's called creating hell. Alienation. Cut off from one's true nature. So what happens when, when there's a period of kindness? One, even for one's own, that painful state, And then in a moment of wishing or sensing our kinship, that we all want happiness and don't like pain, for a moment the mind goes out and and touches those beings around one. Oh, may they be at ease. 
May they not be harmed. May they be well. Notice what happens. Jitta, the heart's opening. May the other creatures on this mountain be well. May all the beings in Underberg and on this Drakenberg Garden Road, the creatures on this mountain, may they be at ease. May they know I don't want to harm them. I'm committed to not harming them. Notice what happens. The Buddha said that's a gift. When you do that, it's a gift that bestows ease and freedom from oppression. Why that makes one worthy to be a disciple of the Buddha is one's putting hairline fractures, one's starting to break up that wrong view, that distorted view that keeps us contracted around what we think is me and that leads to endless birth and death. That direction of opening and being sensitive to the fact that we have this kinship, that we are a part of one family. That's going in the right direction. That's why it's so important that the Buddha said you can consider yourself one of my disciples if you do that. So yes, and it's, again, it's not that this embracing is totally divorced from letting go. When we embrace and then hold too clingly, uh, to clinging, that's what happened, is kindness can easily turn to attachment and to greed or to lust. We think it's love and then suddenly we're gripping it, me, mine. And so really, proper kindness has to have within it letting go. Proper letting go, if letting go goes too far, it can become cold and then just shutting out. So proper letting go has within it the essence of embrace. Proper embrace has within it the essence of holding lightly. The two work together. Holding, letting go, just like Vitaka Vichara, holding, and then vichar exploring. There's that balance between the two, holding and letting go. So the Buddha encouraged this wing of the practice as well. And he encouraged that there are that when you really make much of this, there are blessings, just as there are blessings, uh, you know when one practices mindfulness of the breath there are blessings samatha practices give blessings in fact the kindness practice is a kind of samatha practice it's one of the ways of stabilizing the mind kindness, compassion joy and equanimity which we'll be looking at as the days go on what's called the divine abidings but I'll look uh, this morning at uh, today, mainly the first two, kindness and compassion. The Buddha said when we make much of these, really not just the, a moment, though a moment's powerful, 
in just a moment it makes you worthy to be called a disciple of the Buddha when one puts more energy into making sure that we develop this mind that's not fighting, not harming, allowing, welcoming, wishing for the welfare of others just as we do for ourselves. When we do this, the Buddha said that we will then will be, we will learn to go to sleep peacefully. Or in time that will be a result, that we will go to sleep peacefully and easily. That we will wake up happily, peacefully, easily. That's the second blessing. Third blessing is that we will little by little be freed from being tormented by nightmares, bad dreams. Fourth blessing is that we will become dear to human beings. A lot of beings in this world suffer from feeling unloved. And uh, the Buddha taught the greatest, the greatest uh, solution to this problem is to, rather than waiting around and wanting and feeling, suffering from not feeling love, the Buddha said, generate that within us. First, with our awareness for this body, for these feelings, for these moods that we don't want to be with, we're patient with them. We listen to them. We allow them. And then we, we extend that, as the Buddha taught, extend it in different directions. So when we do that, when we learn to, to sense that, uh, and this is where wisdom helps. Wisdom, when you start to really let go of the distinction between me and you and realize that's all a function of papancha, of conceptual proliferation, then we realize there isn't an ultimate boundary between me and you. That it's just one substance. There's just suffering. It's not my suffering, your suffering, there's suffering. And so my suffering, your suffering, it's all just suffering. So then one starts to sense this kinship, that we're fellow beings. Brothers and sisters, as our teacher used to regularly say, Ajahn Sumedha, we're all brothers and sisters in birth and death. So when we think like that, we wish may others be free from suffering. And that, that one of the results is that we then, just as we allow other beings to become dear to us, and as we look at the uh, classical, we'll look in the next two days at the classical discourse the Buddha gave on kindness. He said the, the paradigm or the model, though it's a high bar, that's all right. We're looking at what the mind will grow into. He said the bar is just as a mother looks at her child, her only child, whom she would... Uh, protect with her life. So you should look and gaze at all living beings. So as a mother regards her only child that she would protect with her life, so should we look at all living beings. That's cherishing, getting the feeling for cherishing beings. Not only the external beings, but then the beings that arise in our hearts. 
the moods. And Kuan Yin is that one who listens at ease. The greatly compassionate one is the one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world. And that's the way we practice this, is by listening at ease in a kindly way to beings coming and going. With a kindly regard, wishing may all beings be free from suffering. We do this, the blessing is we then become dear to human beings. That same principle also works to non-human beings. Someone who regards animals kindly, you notice that animals uh, like that being. You know, they regard animals kindly. You see, some vets are really good with animals, and animals will, will be at ease in their presence. Some of the great masters could go and, and practice in really dangerous areas where tigers and lions were, some of the great Thai masters would be able to be safe there through the power of their metta, their kindness. They didn't harbor any ill will. So that's three. Dear to human beings, dear to non-human beings, protected by the devas, even the subtle forces. Just to ponder this, whether one believes it or not, just ponder. To be open, at least, that there are subtle forces, subtle beings, that respond to beings who are kind. But the devas protect those. The next blessing, the Buddha said, that not only do devas protect, but that when we do this kind of practice, it is in and of itself protective. This one might seem hard to believe, but just to be open to it is a teaching that the Buddha gave. The Buddha said that if one makes a lot of metta, one becomes more protected from harm, from fire, from poison, from weapons. Just to contemplate that. Just even on one level, when one's, when one's heart is kind, it tends to affect the minds of beings that are angry, if someone is kind. I mean, this is a, a minor situation, but it was an example. I once was on a train as a monk, and I had a postulate with me. I was on a train. It was late at night. Well, I can't remember where we were going. I'd given a talk somewhere. I was in my monk's robe, shaved head, and I had someone in white with me who was a postulant. He was in training. And it was the end of some football match in England, and people, a bunch of ruffians, got on the train drunk. And they made a beeline for us and started... You know, we were sitting at a table minding our business and the ringleader of this drunk group, skinheads, they'd shaved their heads too, but they, were, they weren't monks. The head guy set his butt on our table. He just set his butt on our table and then started verbally mocking us and abusing us. And my, the postulate later told me he was thinking of climbing out the window. But I had grown up with guys like this and, uh, in, in school, and so um, I, did, I just started bantering with them, and they were making fun of us, and I, so I, I laughed at them, with them, making fun of us. And then in the course of the, of the, you know, they kept going on then about what we were doing, and then when they found out we were celibate, they really had a fit. <laughs> I'd rather cut off my arm than give up sex. I don't have the accent. I have to get Matt to do that one. But anyway, by the end of the journey, 
we had five or six bodyguards. I mean, they were just so, they were so, by just being kind and letting their rough ways be rough, that was fine, and just somehow not wishing them any harm. By the end, the, the ringleader would just say, you look after yourself now. You know, it was like we had these guys protecting us. It's just such an interesting thing. You don't have to... Now, that's just one situation that's fairly minor, but I think the essence is there. That there's something protective, transformative in non-aversion. And in fact, non-aversion, the Buddha said, that never through hatred is hatred, hatred overcome. This is a famous teaching of the Buddha. Never through hatred is hatred overcome. Never. Only through non-hatred, kindness, can, can hatred be, come to completion. So there's something protective. And the next blessing is that, and meditation comes easier. We've already touched on this earlier in the course, but when one is allowing, you naturally go into samadhi. If one's wanting samadhi and being averse to, God, can't can't we put that dog somewhere else? I mean, Jack is all sweet now, but he's licking all the time. I mean, how can anybody, I come off from halfway around the world to get enlightened, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to him give himself a full body <laughs> tongue massage. <laughs> and as I said before, we could build sensory deprivation chambers, and then you're, you're, you, you know, we still. Okay, there are times I did try to avert the team of chainsaws next door, somewhat successfully, it seems like. But when one allows and is kind, and Jack's doing his meditation, and we're all doing our meditations, and we all have our stuff. And when the heart's doing that with ourself as well, our knees and our mad mind and our little obsessions, and if we're, if we're too impatient, we never get there. When we allow, we allow, we allow the mind more easily cons- finds the concentric center. The other's still there, but we're not fighting it. That way, in its own time, it's subsides. Blessing is to concentrate more easily. The ninth blessing is uh, one we always smile about, but that one's smile becomes more beautiful, one's face becomes more beautiful. I can see someone just said, well, Kitty Sorrow, you should look in the mirror. (laughs) And what I say is, you should have seen me 10 years ago. You don't know where I've come from. So, uh, you know, but there's something beautifies, makes serene. You can see in Tibet some of the most gnarled, weather-battered skins that just shine with a, with a beauty of kind heart. And you can see a, sometimes some perfect body and face from Vogue or something, but if it doesn't have that heart behind it, sometimes it's not as beautiful. Just to contemplate, next time you get really angry, go look in the mirror. Just notice what happens. 
veins bugging out, eyes popping out of the head. Beautifies. And 10th and 11th, number 10 is when one practices like this, one dies peacefully, dies well. Because kindness allows things to come and go, and the dying of the body is the same. We'll print out this list. Don't worry. One dies well, and then one is the last one, reborn well. And I mean, if one penetrates uh, higher, there's that possibility of uh, waking up to the end of birth and death. But if one, if there's choosing, one is reborn happily, reborn well, not against one's will. This, this uh, kindness is a really important virtue. It's one of the great paramitas that led to the Buddha's full awakening. Because even once we've had insight, real insight, and tasted nibbana, we still have all these other conceits and desires and aversions. And one knows the taste of peace, and it's so easy to get so impatient. But without kindness, we just... We just get tormented without the patient kindness and willingness to be with these orphans of our own heart, the nasty moods, the resentments, the depressions, the envies. To be kind to those inner beings, give space, listen at ease so that they can go through their lifespan and die back into the emptiness, die back into the coolness. We don't solve that problem by just hating or just by pretending they're not there. And as we practice on these inner beings, we also practice on these outer beings, each other. Holding, letting things come and go, so it's still not just throwing out the window our teachings on dispassion, our teaching on letting go. But it's just reminding us, this teaching helps us remember that maybe sometimes our letting go is getting to an extreme of pushing away. Helps us just to remember this other mudra, gesture of to hold, to welcome, to let things come into the wellness of well-wishing. And when you let things come into the wellness of well-wishing, that allows them to go in their own time, leaving peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.